1: We are lawyers, mothers, and host of the bipartisan
0: podcast, Pantsuit Politics. Just as we differ in political philosophy, we've arranged our lives in very different ways, from our careers to where we live, to our choices around marriage and family.
1: But we have more in common than divides us. In a world that increasingly defaults to false dichotomies, we explore the messiness of living wisely.
0: Choices, trade-offs, priorities, and grace of living a nuanced life. Everyone and welcome to another episode of the Nuanced Life. We really appreciate that you guys hung with us through Feedback Palooza. It was a mm-hmm. lot of fun for us to get to talk with everyone about their thoughts, and we always value your feedback. So we will start with it again today. For our main segment, Sarah is going to do some processing with all of us about gender disappointment. This is something Sarah's lived in for some time, and we're just going to get it all out there today. And we will end, as always, with something inspirational. We want to thank all of you who have joined us over on Patreon.com slash The Nuanced Life. Our bonus episode for May is up. In it, we talk about switching out of mommy mode and into partner mode. And it is a video episode. And also, you'll see that we're trying to have more discussion about the episodes there. So if you like to really dig in and have a conversation, I think you'll find some like-minded friends on Patreon.com.
1: That bonus episode was so good at the end. I was like... I don't know, should we just make it a regular one? Cause we, we really talked some stuff out about gender, and I kind of at the end was like, man, this is really good. But hey, that's the perk. That's part of the perk, right? The real, some of the really good conversations come out in the bonus episode.
0: I think we're a little bit more casual in the bonus episodes, and so sometimes we're maybe less filtered. I try to be unfiltered in all of our recordings, but after we did that bonus episode, I was like, man, I said some stuff. Cause I felt like I was just talking to you, you know, it wasn't like in front of the microphone. I was just in front of my computer. So it felt more like the two of us were just kind of working things out. Well, let's start with an email that we got from Mike. And speaking of just putting it out there, I loved this email. I love that this email came from a dad. Mike Mm -hmm. says one thing that I am not very good at, but working on is truly living in the moment. My brain is always moving and spinning, thinking about the grocery list or what I have to do at work tomorrow or what needs to happen when I get home. The time where I most fully lived in the moment was when my wife was in labor because there was nothing more in the world than the current contraction or the next contraction. Parenting an infant, five months isn't too dissimilar because the grocery list doesn't matter when the child is screaming and won't go to bed. But every time Sarah references labor, I think of how much it forced me to be completely in the moment. I love,
1: love, love that that came from a dad. I use labor as a metaphor like a lot. (laughs) It works for so many things. Being in the moment, dealing with discomfort, listening to pain. It is just, it is rife with illustrative properties.
0: I agree. I think about labor, I don't know if daily would be accurate, but it's something close to that because it really was the most transformative experience that I've ever had. And not that it was 100% beautiful or something I mean I always tell people it's called labor for a reason it's work like it is not it is not a joke but I do think that it was the most present I've ever been it was the most connected with my body and sort of the earth and just the fact that what I am ultimately is an animal that I've ever Mm -hmm. felt and that that was really really good
1: for me Cat in the closet. That's my friend Paige. I was like a cat in the closet. That's my favorite labor expression. I don't know what that means. Because <laughs> that's where cats go and have their babies. Like, they want to go be in a dark space. Mm. And she was like, I was like a cat in the closet. I wanted to be, like, in a small, dark space. Huh. Huh. I, like an animal instinct.
0: I feel that, too. I hated being in the hospital because I hated, like, I did find all the lights. There was this point with Ellen where I pulled Chad into the bathroom with me, and I begged him to just stand in there with me until I had the baby. Like, I just, <laughs> I did want to be alone and quiet and
1: just left to my own devices. Yeah, the quiet, especially, like, if anyone is having a conversation. And mine is not quiet, cat in a closet. This is about the first two times I was at my mom's house. And they were, like, all chatting it up and having conversations. And I was like, you know what? You all need to be quiet. You're rude. That's rude to be chatting nonchalantly while somebody's in labor. Go find a place to be.
0: It just takes all of your kind of faculties when you're experiencing a contraction, you know? And it's not scary. It just requires you to be there for it. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, so this is not equivalent at all, but I've really been wanting to talk to you about how meditative I have come to find cleaning.
1: You are really on a cleaning kick. I I am
0: on a cleaning kick. Well, so here's what happened. We decided to, we've had someone clean our house since I started at the law firm and had a day when I melted down while I was cleaning the shower. Chad found me in the floor trying to clean the shower. And I was in tears. I don't know how long I'd been there. And I told him that I was failing at everything in my life, including cleaning the shower. And so we got someone to start cleaning our house and have had someone do that ever since, which was a good decision for a time. And now we are in a new season. And for a variety of reasons, the person who cleans our house hadn't been here for a couple of weeks. And I said, why don't we just do this? And then I heard Jane, our seven-year-old, make some comments about how It was not our job to do this and decided, Mm -hmm. oh, we are for sure doing this. Like, (laughs) we are
1: definitely doing this now. Why can't we just leave it for her to clean up? Oh, no, 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 sir. No, No. now you're doing all the things. Congratulations. And so,
0: you know, when you start doing something like that that you haven't done in a while, you see everything differently and then you get really into cleaning everything, right? Deep cleaning, not just Mm -hmm. we vacuumed and dusted, but like... I vacuumed the blind, but I am really finding it. it, I mean, it's not labor, but it is one of those experiences. I have so few things where I can look at what I did with my hands and say, look at this thing that just happened because of the work of my hands, you know, Mm -hmm. and man, I enjoy that so much. And just to be able to step back from a room, because I haven't just been cleaning. It's also led me to think like, why do we have these things in this drawer?
1: And oh, oh, it's my favorite thing. Oh, I just love that stuff so much.
0: Yes. We don't need these bottles anymore because Ellen doesn't drink from bottles anymore. And just like all of that stuff to be able to step back at the end of the day, being a good, healthy, not in my head at
1: all tired and to see what I've done. Oh, it's so good. It's so good. Um, I think you're also sort of falling deeply in love with Connery, it sounds like, too.
0: I haven't really thought about her in this process, but I am loving getting rid of things for sure.
1: That process is like when you realize how much mental space the stuff in your house takes up and how much you can free up by getting rid of things. mm, It's beautiful. And I love I I really don't. It's like you said, like the drawer thing, like I'd like to know that I'm using my house every inch of my house in like a very efficient and organized manner. Like I used to, even when I was little, I would like unpack every drawer in my room, clean out every drawer, go through everything I had and kind of catalog, what do I want to keep? What do I want to get rid of? What do I want to put back? To, is this the best place to put it back? Sadly, I'm not able to do that as often as I did when I just had one room with my big house and all my peoples, but I still do that a lot. I still think about like, is this 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 is this where it makes sense to keep this? Um, I have found that I enjoy cleaning In my new space where I have I think the reason I didn't like to clean my old house Is because it was Like I couldn't access the cleaning stuff Because we were It was so tightly packed But now I have like this great little spot Where I hang my broom So I just pick it up off the spot Sweep the floor Hang it back up And sweeping in particular I find to be very meditative Like I love to sweep the floor And now that it's like Just easier to clean And I love the space so much Yeah it's like It's very peaceful I really enjoy it The other thing that's been occurring to me, I
0: advise people on resumes a lot because I've looked at so many over the course of my career. And I always tell people you need so much white space on resumes Mm -hmm. because I want to be able to, like, look at your bullet point and really think about it and then move on to the next one. Please do not jam words at me visually. Right. And I'm realizing that all my stuff needs white space. Yes. I lined up my measuring cups and my measuring spoons. And I had them like shoved in one corner of this cabinet and I gave them all this room. And now I'm like, oh, it's so much more enjoyable to grab. (laughs) I don't know. Just my things need white space around them in the same way that I think words need white space around them.
1: Well, and that's what Connery says about the kitchen. Like it's not about efficiently, not necessarily about getting things in and out or having. Well, it's not about having things where you can easily get to them. It's about how easily you can clean up afterwards. That's why I was so maniacal when we redid our kitchen to put everything behind a cabinet because I hate um, wiping down counters, but that's really an important part of a clean kitchen except I realize it's not that I don't like wiping down the counters I don't like getting to the point where I have to wipe down the counters I like moving all the stuff so that you can actually clean the counter so now my countertops don't hold very many things so it's much easier for me to wipe them off and I find that process very pleasant like it's it's about the ease at which you can clean and use your things and that just that to a certain extent like just there has to be less of them less decision making about what you're going to use and where it's going to go back all that plays a role man it's good. I got
0: down on my hands and knees and washed my tile floor by hand in the kitchen. It felt so good. I turned on some music. Now, I did feel a little bit like Bridget Jones because it was like happy, the kind of music that is in every romantic comedy. And yeah. while I was cleaning, my kids kept coming in and asking me questions. And they it's boo-boo season, right? It's summer. Somebody's hurt constantly. Mm-hmm. And so every few minutes, somebody would come over in tears. Bye my bug bite is bleeding, whatever. Um, so I felt a little bit ridiculous, but I really, really enjoyed it. Speaking of efficiency, I want to talk about this message that we got from Kelsey on our Patreon page. She said that in the discussion on education and our general one track trajectory, one word really struck a chord with me, linear. For me, that is a word that I associate very heavily with a quality control slash lean Six Sigma mindset. Full disclosure, I was a design student forced into a lot of production classes, and I'm still a little scarred. (laughs) You want production to be linear and efficient and do all the things with minimal variance and as little waste as possible. This mindset is helpful in the practical logistical side of production and a terrible people strategy. But that's exactly what we are trying to do. We have tried to transfer this factory-like thinking into how we deal with people and safe to say it is not working out for us. The system of trying to benchmark people like they are machines is a recipe for disaster.
1: That's so good. It's so good. And we do it in so many different institutions in our current society. I'm looking at you, public school.
0: Yes. I thought this was amazing. And it's just very succinctly said, like, there is a place for that. It's not that it's wrong to think about efficiency and to think about lean processes. It's that that place isn't all everything. And it kind of gets to this point that we're always circling around and, and what nuance means to us. That everything is situational. Yeah. And we don't need to ascribe some kind of moral value to everything you are not a superior being because you figured out a way to make everything more efficient
1: Hmm. Hmm. man it's so hard though as a person who really enjoys ascribing moral authority to things which we'll get into in my gender disappointment conversation um and just deciding thinking about that it's it's so backwards though because it feels easier in the moment but it makes everything harder
0: to ascribe moral value makes everything harder. Yeah, and to try yeah. to think
1: about things in a linear way.
0: Well, there's no flexibility, right? And and flexibility is scary for a lot of people. We aren't born looking for flexibility necessarily, right? I always think about the dog whisperer guy. What's his name? Caesar something. Caesar. And and how, you know, I don't know that he's right about everything. I This is, like, way outside of my lane. But... I'm always interested in him talking about how dogs feel best when their owner is confident and is being the leader. Mm -hmm. And I think lots of people feel that way. Like, they want a routine. uh, And there is nothing wrong with that. Like, we've talked a lot about working flexibly on this podcast for a couple of weeks now. That is not for everyone. It for sure isn't. And that is okay. Okay. There's no moral value in the way we're living our lives versus the way that I was living my life a very short time ago. It's just different and there are different seasons and we can, I think when we can get out of that, this is the way, then there's like this whole potential for creativity and um, just relationship with each other and interest in each other.
1: I think about the lazy genius. Uh, Kendra came on our show and she did this really great series on summer strategy. And she talked about, you know, our goal for summer should just be connecting with our kids because we have more time for that in the summer, in theory, connecting with our spouses and our partners and our community and our kids. And she said, you know, but basically in order to do that, you have to travel light and touching back to our stuff conversation, I think that we've been told because our, um, to get super politically philosophical here, because our system um, is built on capitalism, which means we need to, which is built on us acquiring more things. We're told like, you know, the the right route to happiness is to acquire and to get your stuff and keep it and hold it tight as opposed to no, travel light because it's about people. I mean, I think linear thinking is is about the safety of the known and the stuff and not m- packing light so that you can swim around in the unknown. You know what I mean? hmm Yeah. That's hard. And there's so much middle ground. That
0: doesn't mean, like, let's all become Buddhist monks or something.
1: It just, I would be a terrible Buddhist monk.
0: It just means, I think I'd be really good at that, actually. You would
1: be good at it, but I would be a terrible one.
0: But but we don't have to do that. You know, travel light doesn't mean sell all your possessions, right? And that's the other thing. We we tend to think in a linear way and in a dualistic way. And it can Mm -hmm. just be more ease up on those expectations.
1: Oh, that is a perfect transition to the gender disappointment conversation. (laughs)
0: Let's do it. It's that time of the year
1: kind of dove right in but we have so many sort of origin stories stories that really um led to the point where we were looking for more nuanced and more um and differing perspectives on parenting and family and all these things and this is definitely one of my stories so when I decided it was time to have a baby and then I just informed my husband because so it wasn't really a mutual conversation <laughs> it was more like I don't have a baby now let's do this um There just wasn't a scenario in which I was not going to have a baby girl. I am an only child, um, so I didn't have any brothers growing up. I have twin half-brothers, but they lived in California with my father. So um, I grew up in a household, two women, and my stepfather, my mother and me. I really, really like being a woman. I like having female friends. Um, I just like the whole culture. I did all the... um, dream mapping you know and I had one particular picture that I believe I still have that I cut out from a magazine it's this little um red-headed girl with curly wavy hair and she's bent over on a beach and I like cut her off cut it out and put on my map and I was like I could just see this little girl like this was my little girl on this beach I was just going to manifest this into my life um also I grew up with my mother the narrative in my house was I wanted a red-headed girl named Sarah I wanted a red. I wanted a little girl. That's what I got. Like it was just very matter of fact. This is this is what I wanted. This is what I got. And I think that probably informed me as well. So I just knew. I knew in every cell of my being that I was going to get pregnant and that this baby was going to be a girl. So I got pregnant the very first time. I had unprotected sex. So super fertile, um, which was a blessing because I was about to go crazy, and that was just one month of trying. And get pregnant, definitely going to find out the gender, go to the um, ultrasound tech in D.C. And lay down on the table. The ultrasound tech um, is going through all the stuff. Baby looks good. Can't find the gender. She's like, I can't, I'm not comfortable saying, I can't tell for sure, so I'm going to go get my supervisor. We're like, okay, great. So she goes and gets the supervisor. The supervisor comes in and says, doesn't hesitate. It's a girl. I've got girls. I'm crying. The, the supervisor's like, I've got girls. You're going to love it. You're going to love having a little girl. I'm like crying. I'm so excited. Um, I just can't believe it, but I can, cause I just knew, I knew, I knew that it was going to be a girl. So it's a girl, but they're like, well, but there is a small problem in that we can't see all four chambers of the heart. We got to check those. So you're going to have to come back in a week or two so we can do the rest of the anatomy scan. Wonderful. So I come back Lay down on the table, the woman is checking the heart, and then I'm like all a little excited. I'm like, can you just check the gender one more time? I just want to make sure she checks the gender. Yep, it's a girl. Get excited. It's a girl. Great. Start buying the presents, have a baby shower, get all the frilly little girl things. And I have this first baby shower with my friend Leslie, friend of the pod Leslie, who is having a boy and – I am so smug and awful about having a girl. I shudder to think back on this baby shower. Like, I just, I sicken myself when I think about how smug I was about that I got this little baby girl. And because I just knew. I just knew that was going to happen. I just manifested it. So we get ready to move to Paducah. We move back to Paducah. And when we get to Paducah, we go on a baby moon to Cancun, Mexico. We go down to Cancun, Mexico. We're having a good time. I'm trying to be careful about not drinking the water. Clearly some slipped through, and I get Montezuma's revenge. I'm really sick. I, the baby's kicking. I, I just, besides the, you know, rampant diarrhea, I feel okay. But they send a, a doctor to the hospital because Nicholas starts to get nervous at, like, day two. He's like, this is a lot. I think you need to talk to doctor. So they sent a doctor to the, hospi- to the hotel room, and he's like, I think you should go to the emergency room just to be safe. So I go to the emergency room. In Mexico, Nicholas is checking us in, dealing with all our insurance in a foreign country, and they're like, we're just going to wheel you back to an ultrasound to check on the baby. And do you want your husband? I'm like, nah, he's we've seen the baby a bunch of times by now. It's fine. We go back into the ultrasound room, me and this little um, Mexican ultrasound tech, and she's scanning the baby, and she says, it's a boy? And I say, no, it's not a boy. It's a girl. No, it's a boy. She's like, Very confused at my insistence that this baby is, in fact, a girl. So I am devastated, just total devastation. We're stuck in Mexico a few more days. It is arguably some of the worst days of my life because I don't like being in hospitals. They weren't telling me what was going on. There's a language barrier. I'm desperate to get back to the United States so somebody in the United States can tell me that this Mexican ultrasound tech was wrong and that this baby is a a girl. So upset. We finally get back. I have to be there on IVs and everything for like two days I finally get back I have one of my mom's friends read the ultrasound that they print out of Mexico she's like I don't know I think you should get checked we go finally get into the doctor's office in Paducah because I don't think I'd even been to the doctor yet they check no it's definitely a boy so I'm just I'm devastated I had bonded to this little girl I had given her a name I had bought her clothes I had had a baby shower I am 300% just devastated I have all these completely irrational fears about having a boy that you know he won't you know love me at a certain point that he'll just abandon me that he'll have autism I mean you name it what ridiculously terrible awful stereotypical thing I could have I had it I had you know I had visions of having a little girl that was gonna love to read and we were gonna you know just she was gonna be my little mini me and it was gonna be so wonderful not the case now I have Griffin he is perfect. He is wonderful. I fall madly in love with him. We decided to have another baby two years later. This time we're more careful about the trying to do the where you have sex before you ovulate. Nicholas is sure this one's a girl. Go the ultrasound tech. Amos at least had the self-respect to show himself up front easily and they'll show I mean she barely touched it to my belly. Boy. Definitely a boy. Okay, not a big deal. I'm not scared of boys anymore. I'm not, I'm still upset because it feels like this dream to have a little girl is getting further and further away. Cause I know we don't want to have like this giant family. I sort of have to convince Nicholas to have the third child. <laughs> um, my mom and my grandmother don't want me to have the third kid. I get pregnant. Um, we're not going to find out the gender this time. We decide it's going to be a surprise, but at the 20 week ultrasound, we find out that this baby has passed away. Um, we decide I have to have surgery and, This is really driven mostly by my husband who said we have enough stuff to be sad about. I don't think we should find out the gender of this baby. So we don't. I still don't know what the gender of that baby was. A month later, looking back, this was a mistake, too soon, too emotionally soon, I get pregnant with Felix. We do find out the gender because I needed it to feel very different from the experience where I lost the baby. He's a boy, obviously. Um, And this whole time, I'm just battling and battling and battling with this to different levels it bubbles up the worst when i'm feeling like generally kind of just sad this is my, my go-to thing to feel sad about and i get you know i work through all these things it's not that i want to go to the american girl girl stall i don't girl doll store i don't really care about any of that um i'm sad that you know i won't have there's a there's a connection i think that people talk about with when your daughter has a baby that you just don't get that when your son has a baby I'm sad about that, but I also acknowledge, like, my daughter might not have had a baby. Like, who knows what her life would have been like. Um, She might never have chosen to get married. She might have been transgendered. Who knows? It's a universe of possibility, and these expectations I was placing on this imaginary daughter might never have come true anyway. So it was really hard, though, and I think that people are um, very not sympathetic to this for a lot of reasons that i totally understand i understand that somebody that battles with infertility does not want to hear from somebody that they're sad their baby is one gender instead of the other like i totally 100 get that um but with my experience in particular like it felt like i lost a baby in a real really weird way i had bonded with a baby named her had her life picked out in front of me and again i think it was it was almost like a just a an introduction introduction to parenting generally in that It parenting is one long. I think letting go of your expectations and realizing that this is like a little person and not your mini me and not your bucket in which to put things you had ideas you had about parenting. And I think I just learned that in a sort of abrupt fashion. And I had to think through so many things about gender parenting, um, stereotypes I held myself about so many things. And it it did, but it did, I think, it, on the stop of my road to nuance, I think this was, like, a very, very big part.
0: Sarah, you have shared before that so much of your dreams and hopes and expectations about marriage and family was shaped through the lens of television and film.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Do you think that that is where... The vision of parenthood and specifically of what mother-daughter relationships looks like took root in you.
1: Yeah, I think that's definitely a big part of it. I think that our culture, and it, I don't, and I think it's reinforced in sort of my everyday interactions. Like, I mean, people say, "Well, a daughter's yours for life; a boy's yours until he takes a wife." People say that shit to me in 2018, y'all, on the street. Um, so there's also this. It's not just like the expectation of like sort of parenting the child but there's definitely this cultural message about you know i i told a friend once that sometimes it feels like in you can feel this in movies and television and in conversations even in everyday life that boys are like the consolation prize of babies like and i think that they've officially like officially recently it over the the desire in america of having a girl over a boy has, like, officially surpassed. It was for a long time. people, More people wanted a boy, but now it's officially changed, and now more more people want a girl. Um, and because I, I think that there are cultural messages we get through TV about little boys, that they're wild and that little girls are, you know, quiet. It's, it's all these messaging we get about how boys are and how girls are that plays into what people think about what it's going to be like to parent a boy and parent a girl.
0: Oh, man, there's just so much in that. <laughs> you know, because mm-hmm. even the sense of, like, yours for life. I. So I come at parenting always thinking they're not mine at all. Mm-hmm. And so I I really don't have this vision for what my children are going to mean in my life. Now, the other thing is I started not sure if I wanted to have kids. And then we got pregnant really fast when we became open to the idea as well. And then I sort of thought... I have some health issues. This could be really difficult for me. I was sick my whole pregnancy. I've just never had a kind of fairy tale version of my life around motherhood. So my expectations have always been really different. But even the other night, uh, Jane was asking something about our house. And I said, Well, we might not live here forever. And she said, What do you mean? And I said, I don't what? know. Like when you, you know, you and Ellen will go off and, and live where you want to live and do your own things. And, and so we might change where we want to be, too. And she goes, but what we would want to come visit you here. And I said, right, well, you could visit us wherever we are. But but it was just news to her that that they aren't mm-hmm. the beginning and ending of every thought that we have um, and and that we don't expect her to do any particular thing you know I said you can live wherever you want to live we'll come see you we'll be excited for you but I've just never had that vision of that kind of connection and I think that so much of everything comes down to what are your expectations going in which is why I'm so interested Mm in sort of what caused you to sort of script out your life this way in your head
1: I think that the more I look back on it the more I realize that you know I grew up most of my friends now this is no longer true almost everybody's parents are divorced but I grew up in a community where most of my friend's parents were still married and mine were not now I did not you know my stepdad is like a father to me and my father was an excellent long-distance father and so I'm like it, it, sort of in the individual day-to-day life it didn't I, my life was not different necessarily than theirs But I think I internalized that outsider status in ways that I'm not really – it's hard for me to articulate. Um, And I think I felt this – you know, I also think part of it is because my mother was one of four. And her sort of nuclear family and extended family, it was like our focus. We didn't have – a lot of sort of strong identity As a nuclear family Do you know what does that make sense Like mm-hmm. we didn't have our own sort of Big family holiday traditions And because it was just me And there weren't all these siblings Like she grew up with Like it was just a very different experience And I think there was a part of me that was like I want that I want the mom, dad, big kids, family traditions Like American dream for me and my kids And my husband Like I wanted, I wanted that boy-girl 2.5 kid experience that is in cult. I watched ah, so much TV as an only child, so much Cosby show, and so much of those sort of traditional family shows, and I was surrounded by so much of that in my life, in my community, and I think there was a part of me that's like, I didn't get it growing up, I'm going to go out there and make it for myself as an adult. And that manifested in, in the gender thing. I think I just... I really never entertain. I never want, I thought through so much. I wanted to be a mother always. Um, I wanted a bunch of kids. I never, ever entertained the thought that I would be the mother to three boys. It is so far out of the expectation I had for myself or the reality that I imagined. Like I thought I, like there was a little boy in that dream app, like as an afterthought. (laughs) Like there was a, yeah, I would definitely want to raise a little boy. That sounds fun. In addition to the main primary experience, which is raising a little mini me. Like, there's so much vanity involved in parenting, too. And I think that that was so much of it for me, too, is um, that there was so much of the experience of being like a redheaded little girl. And I loved that. And I loved that part of my identity. And I wanted, I learned a lot of lessons being the redheaded little girl. And I was excited to pass those down to another redheaded little girl, you know? And I think that's part of it, too, is like passing, feeling like you pass on something. I think there's also, truthfully, Some, like, real animal instinct stuff that I hadn't thought of until I read recently. Like, there's just a lot of, like, mother to daughter, mother to daughter, and that you never, like, we're talking deep subconscious. Like, you don't doubt the genealogy if it's your daughter's daughter. You know what I mean? But, like, if it's your son's daughter, well, it could be his daughter, but subconsciously it could not be his daughter. Does that make sense? Like, this really deep instinctual stuff going on, too, I think. I don't relate to any of
0: that, but what I really love and appreciate whenever you talk about this is that sense that you don't have to relate to it to recognize that people grieve all kinds of different things.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: And the fact that some people can't get pregnant and it, it, it goes back to the thing that you quote Dr. Phil on all the time about if your leg's broken and you're next to someone who has cancer, it doesn't make your leg not broken. <laughs> like we don't have leg's to, still broken. yeah, we don't, we don't have to, um, always be in a race to what's the hardest thing for it to still be a real difficulty in life. And so I like and appreciate hearing you talk about the, the grief aspect of this, uh, because I think that's brave, and I think it's important, and I think that it's a good reminder that we all have so many dreams that we are grieving um, mm-hmm. and and aren't always aware of about each other.
1: Well, and that's the thing; it just makes me so sad. There's just such a nastiness when, and it's not like this is the only thing we do, but having gender disappointment, especially if your partner does not understand, which my husband never did; he just never cared. And I remember crying and being like, I wish I could feel like that. I really do. I, I would give anything to wake up tomorrow and not care. I want to not care desperately, so badly. And it's like I couldn't do it. I just, I even literally was like, maybe I should go under hypnosis. and Maybe I could just wake up and not care anymore. And when you're, it's such a lonely experience anyway. And so I see these women who come out publicly and talk about it, and they're just crucified and i'm like you know what it's lonely and for anyone emotions are just data like someone feeling sad about this it doesn't she's not saying it's wrong for you to feel sad about something but there might be somebody that feels sad in the way same way she does and just to hear someone else say oh wow this isn't she's not saying this is the only way to be but i felt sad about this and maybe you did too and maybe it's nice to just talk to somebody about it like It's a very lonely experience because you feel like an asshole. I felt like an asshole being sad about this. Like, I just thought, what's wrong with you? Like, people can't, you have friends who desperately want a kid and can't get it. And here you are feeling sad about this. I felt like a bad mother. I felt like Griffin and Amos and Felix are going to think I didn't want them and I don't love them. And I never want them to feel like that. Like, it was just so it was a really clearly I still carry the scars from it like it was a very hard feeling to have and thing to talk about and so when other women come out and talk about it and they just get no one there's no empathy for them that's just judgment what a terrible person you are like there was a British woman who I mean she had like oh my god like 11 sons or something and she was talking about wanting a daughter and people just went after and I'm like what what do you gain by doing that to her? Like, what's the, what is she going to, you think you're going to shame her into not feeling this thing anymore? I promise you, she's probably trying to shame herself out of it. It doesn't work like that. What's the best reaction to this that anyone's given you? Well, I will say first to husbands. When my husband stopped trying to convince me not to feel that way and just said, Like, let's talk about what you're afraid of and how we can deal with some of that. So, like, I, you know, a big part of it is I am afraid of all this stuff that people tell you about boys, that they're just going to leave you and not take care of you. And he was like, okay, well, let's work on, you know, I'll make sure that they see me calling my mom. Not because he doesn't want to call his mom anyway, but, like, just so that they understand how important his mom is to him. And that helped me. That made me feel a lot better. And just friends who said, that must be really hard. I'm sorry. Like, I can understand that disappointment and it is a type of grief and you're not a bad person for feeling it. That was really helpful.
0: I think it's important to share things like that because I think, I know for me, the the closest that I can relate to this is having been in a car accident where someone died and it wasn't my fault, right? And people say all kinds mm-hmm. of things that just are completely unhelpful about that because they don't understand the grief that you're experiencing, If you didn't know the person why are you sad wasn't your fault why are you sad and so I think the more we can share here's what was supportive and helpful (laughs) and practice those kinds of responses in our lives that's a good thing because we don't have to understand each other's grief to be able to show up as friends and and support each other.
1: Yeah, my friend Annie's always very good at that. She always sends me to tears every time. It can even be a text message, but her response is always, I'm sorry, that must be really hard. And you just want to be like, yes, it is. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah, instead of trying to tell you like, oh, it's not that hard. Get over it. Or
0: even just when people um, have advice about like, well, you must be meant to do this, right? Or, Oh, I hate that. But you make such a
1: good boy, Mom. Thanks. I appreciate it.
0: Yeah. Like, like, listen, you're clearly not seeing the big picture here. Mm. I don't really want you to help me see the big picture. Thank you. Yeah.
1: <laughs> you know? <'Cause> the underlying <laughs> assumption is that I'm not looking for the big picture. Right. Or like, I can't see it. No, that's not the issue here with love. Right. Yeah. There is lots of, and, you know, I think that all of us um, would do well to think about. The way we talk about raising little boys and raising little girls and the way it's just harmful across the board. Um, And I mean, even to the individual children, like the way we talk about it, I've noticed my kids do a lot of less cross gender play, which I think is good for both genders. And it makes me sad when they start to segregate Um, because I think they're good influences on each other in lots of different ways. But we and you know, people just people say my friend who has three girls people say the craziest stuff to her just strangers on the street you don't have to comment like you just don't it's okay you can just what a beautiful family and move on. Well, little
0: girls from from the get go get so much um, sexualization. Mm-hmm. You know, it it's it's hard for someone to just say your daughters are beautiful. Then they'll say, like, you're going to have a hard time with boys. I mean, it's just weird. It's like like we're working on our colors. I don't I mean, I'm just not ready to have that conversation. We don't
1: have to talk about this yet.
0: Yeah. Or the two of them are about to get married or whatever. There's a really sweet little boy on our street that Ellen loves to play with. And Ellen was chasing him around our house the other day saying, stop, stop, stop. We need to get married. And I heard her saying that, and I thought, oh, my gosh, I'm sure that the older kids started this. And I stopped her, and I said, hey, you don't need to get married. You just need to be friends. And she kind of stood there for a second and looked a little bit puzzled. And then she starts running again, and she goes, stop, stop, stop. We need to be friends. (laughs) This is maybe a good first step to doing a little bit better on gender issues. Just take out the sense of mini-me. You know, I don't I don't need this to be a little adult that I work out all my stuff on mm-hmm. and that I'm already planning for their college and their marriage and and being a grandmother or whatever. It's just this is a little person who's going to change a lot and have opinions and practices and a life that I can't even imagine standing here today. So I just need to kind of step back for myself and this little person i am really sensitive to the mini me thing because ellen looks so much like me and she not only looks like me but she expresses herself very much like me and tends to have reactions that are a lot like mine and i'm worried every time someone says you know she's just a little beth i think gosh she probably doesn't want to be a little beth
1: you know and how are we going to give her that she's going to care at 12
0: She's going to care a lot at 12. And that could take yeah. us to some very dark places if we aren't careful
1: about it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, and it's so interesting to watch. You know, it's a, it's a fascinating thing to watch. And I think that's part of it is I just felt like I was missing out on something, like, because the experiences would be so um, different, from parenting a girl to parenting a boy and I like different experiences. And so there was a part of me that was just like, oh, I'm missing out on it. And then I did read an article that was really a turning point for me where the woman described how parenting multiple children of the same gender is such an insight into personality and humanity because you can't ascribe it to gender. And then I felt like I got this awesome experience. Then it's somebody but just twisting the the perspective that much made me feel like oh i get this really cool insight because of the because of what my having three boys and that i see things in a different in a more clear way that are really personality and all these different things that i can't ascribe to gender and i it, it made me feel like i got something instead of i was missing out on something and that was really helpful yeah just the
0: limited time i've spent with your boys they are three really different real kids. different
1: but like not too that's what's so weird it's like because here's another thing that we probably just a whole episode on. I really, it really bothers me the way people want to ascribe personality traits. They do it for birth order, they do it for gender, they do it based on just looks and the parents, and it just takes on this life of its own until your kid's like, "Well, Griffin is the brain and I'm the brawn." I'm like, "What are you even talking about?" Like. But people want it's like, and I understand it, because parenting is hard, and there's so many unknowns. and if you can put them in a box, it makes it easier to understand what the task before you. Um, but yeah, it's so weird because it's like in so many ways, Griffin and Griffin and Amos in particular seem so different, but in so many ways, they're so similar. And Felix is very different from the two of them. It's just it's just so the personality of your children is such a Pandora's box in a way. I think it's a reminder to you that they aren't really ours. You mm.
0: know, when I reacted to yours oh, for life. See, whatever. this is
1: why you would be such a good Buddhist because every time you say, "I'm like," you're I can hear the peace and calm when you say that, and every time you say it, I just want to go, "No, they're mine. They're my babies." <laughs> yeah, so I'd, I'd be a terrible Buddhist. The,
0: I, they aren't really ours, and and I do feel a sense of freedom about that. That I'm more of a caretaker and fiduciary, um, but. What they become and what they choose to do with their lives is, is theirs. Mm. And how they choose to put me in that is theirs, too. Oh, that part really makes me want to vomit. Sorry. <laughs>
1: oh, God. But I really that believe it. So like, much. I believe
0: it down into my toes. And I honestly think that...
1: But wait, I have a of, question about that. Yeah. But how do you feel... Like, But what about the role of family and, like, caregiving your family and taking care of each other and being in this group? And, like, the duty we owe to our family. Do you feel that you owe a duty to your family? You have to. I see how you act in your personal life.
0: I love them. Um, And I think that when when you love freely, then everything that you choose to do means a lot. I have also observed caregiving from a place of unquestioned duty Mm. and how detrimental that can be for everybody. Yeah. Because when you are, well, I'll just say it even more concretely because I, I don't think this will be hurtful to anyone in my family. I would never want to hurt anyone in my family. My grandmother, Joy, who I adored And let me say, like, I feel like she lives inside my little Ellen. I feel like her spirit is with me all the time because Ellen acts a lot like her. Um, And she was so instrumental in my life. So much of the good and the wisdom and the happiness that I feel comes from my grandmother Joy. Her mother lived with her for, I think, a couple of decades. And had dementia. But way before she had dementia, was just... A difficult woman. And I liked her too. I loved her. I mean, she was hilarious. She was smart. Um she was kind of ahead of her time in I was some ways. Say, no wonder she
1: was difficult considering what her age was.
0: That's right. <laughs> she and and she was super, super difficult. And my grandmother Joy did everything for her for the longest time. And she loved her for sure. And I don't want to take anything away from that. But it evolved into a real sense of duty. Mm-hmm. And it evolved into a sense of, I have to make this work. Otherwise, I'm not a good daughter. And there is some, there's some toxicity in that for everybody. Mm-hmm. Especially when you get to the point where someone has health problems and you struggle to make decisions that would truly be in their best interest because you're no longer equipped to care for them, but you feel a sense of guilt about that. Mm -hmm. And so it's not that I think we um, owe each other nothing. It is that I think when we give it freely and and in a clear headed way, it means a lot more. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I guess I'm just reacting to, I think that I definitely understand that situation. I just think that situation is the exception. I think that if you look around culturally, There is more, um, there is not enough, in my personal opinion, um, valuing of what we owe our elders and what we um, should be giving in order to sort of make them, to keep them a part of our community and to value their um, influence and what they can contribute to the community and that there's just this sort of, Warehousing that really bothers me. I'm I'm painting with a incredibly broad brush right now.
0: I don't disagree with any of that. A question that I have about it is whether some of that comes from a sense of parenting as a vanity project.
1: Mm, Good point. That
0: by putting so much on the experience of parent and child children don't ever have the opportunity to see their parents as people Mm -hmm. and when your family unit is constructed where it is always kind of child-centric there can be a sense of it is all about me right and and what am I going to gain from them and they wouldn't want me to to do this and 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 I think that's true whether we're talking about true caretaking situations or just involvement in life. I don't know. I-, I have a hard time finding the right balance of let's make this about the kids versus let's show the kids that we're adults and we have needs to. I think that is a really tricky balance. And it's something that Chad and I think a lot about in our family. And we really try to navigate because I've never done this before. I have no idea in the long term what's going to be effective. And I don't even know what effective would mean because mm-hmm. I can envision a hundred different lives for both of my daughters and, and for Chad and I in our old age, all of which would be very happy. And, and so I, I think for me, the answer is just, I want to have a loving relationship with these two daughters knowing full well that they're going to go off and live their lives as they please and i hope that they will include me in that life in a way that feels right to all of us but but that's kind of as far as it goes for me
1: i just want them to call me every single day and live next door i mean i don't think we're that far apart <laughs> <sighs> When you were talking about Ellen being, or Jane being like, well, why wouldn't we come back here? Amos and I had a similar conversation. It went like this. Why do parents leave when they have kids of their own? And I said, baby, you don't have to. You can live here forever. So, again,
0: we're not that far apart. <laughs> this is one of those situations where we're on opposite sides of the world. <laughs> yep.
1: But I but I mean,
0: it, I don't want to be judgmental of where you are. It's I couldn't. Honestly, I would be a nervous wreck if I felt that way. It would not be. I'm a nervous wreck.
1: I am a nervous wreck about my babies. Maybe I should let it go. Maybe I would have more peace and calm. I think it's just you know it's just you just love them so much, and it's just hard to imagine a time. It's hard enough when they go to like elementary school, and you're like, I don't, I don't understand how you're having all these experiences that I don't know about. Like, I don't have that feeling at all. There's this (laughs) moment in uh, Motherhood Out Loud, the play I just did, where one of the skits is about a military mom, and she says she talks about how you know, as a mom, you just feel like you need to go in the place first and you need to see the danger and understand it before you send your kids in. And that's what's so hard about being a military mom is they're going out there in all these dangerous places that you have no control over. It's the normal Bombeck thing, right? Letting your heart walk around outside your body that you just, it's such a vulnerable position in. And, you know, when I I meet vulner I think you're so good. You meet vulnerability with sort of this release and I meet vulnerability with like, I will hold it tighter. That will make me feel better.
0: Well, if I go first all the time, I limit their experiences. And that's what I never want to do. I never want Jane and Ellen's lives to be limited by the, the edge of my imagination. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's what would happen if I exercised all this control. I feel like it would really confine them to whatever my vision for them can be. And they may have a purpose that I can't even... I hope that they do something with their lives that I can't even imagine sitting here today, you know. And so to me, a lot of it is about just recognizing my own limitations and saying, like, what can I do to let them know that all of whatever they choose is going to be great? It's going to be great. And I want to instill in them some virtues that I think will serve them well. And I want them to know that they are loved so that they have the courage to go out and do whatever that's going to be. That's
1: a great place to end. <laughs>
0: or they can call me every day and live beside me. That would be also. fine too. <laughs>
1: also, yeah. Mainly though, I just want them to call me. No, I, I mean it's <laughs> not that I don't. I, I I think there's a part of me that's like I just assume that I have. I there's a part of my brain that says I couldn't stop them from going out and finding the world if I wanted to. Like I just assume that's going to happen, and what I want. For them to understand Is that As big As they can dream Like the the foundation From which they spring is just as important Like I guess I to me It's all about Building up the foundation and like you said And the values and understanding like This is This connection that we have to each other Is so important And will make everything you do out there so much better and so like I just there's a yeah there's a part of me that's just like I don't even I don't think about that it's just assumed like I just assume like of course they're going to I can't wait to see what they do but there's there's a part of me that thinks maybe because I'm so strong of spirit and so is their father you could maybe call that stubborn if you were feeling less generous that like I couldn't stop them if I wanted to sometimes I do but there's like no way I could I have no doubt about that um, and so there's just, I want to make sure that they understand that there's, it's the nuance, right? That there's two sides of that coin. And the flip side is understanding your foundation and your family and these connections that make everything else worth doing.
0: Yeah. And, and let me say, I call my parents, I try to call every day and I adore them and they are super important to me. And so none of this is coming from a place of like, well, I don't care about family. Yeah. And I, I hope that they will call me often and, and come see us and that we'll do the same. I just want them to also know that they there are going to be times in their lives when they need space from us. Mm-hmm. And I want them to know that they can take that space. And I would rather get a call about a really important question than a sense of duty calling me once a day to just chat and get it over with.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And so it's just to, to me about... Like, the foundation that I want to set is is a very high-quality foundation. And I know you do, too.
1: Right. I don't know how we got to um, hear from gender disappointment, but <laughs> it was a good one.
0: It wouldn't be the Nuance Life if it were focused,
1: you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, next up, we're going to leave you with something to keep you inspired throughout the week. So I got this amazing book. I talked about it on Pantsuit Politics as well at our library summer read-off. It's called A Book That Takes Its Time, An Unhurried Adventure in Creative Mindfulness. Um, I love a workbook. I love books that have like lots of things going on, which this one does. It has like little articles, has note cards you can tear out. It has journals, little mini journals, like in the pages. This is just the cutest, coolest little book. And it had a poem in it that I'm going to share. It is called Between Going and Staying Between Octavio Paz. Between going and staying, the day wavers, in love with its own transparency. The circular afternoon is now a bay, where the world in stillness rocks. All is visible and all elusive. All is near and can't be touched. Paper, book, pencil, glass rest in the shade of their names. Time throbbing in my temples repeats the same unchanging syllable of blood. The light turns the indifferent wall into a ghostly theater of reflections. I find myself in the middle of an eye, watching myself in its blank stare. The moment scatters, motionless, I stay and go. I am a pause.
0: Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of The Nuanced Life. We'll be back with you on Wednesday. Between now and then, you can catch us on fancy
1: Politics until then, keep The Nuanced